Hallelujah. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4, and while you're turning there, we welcome everyone who's watching by way of live stream and internet, and some of you will be watching it later on Facebook and whatever else you have available in the way of social media. So thank you for joining us, and we pray that the message will be a great inspiration to your life today. Mark chapter 4, this is the first sermon I heard Kenneth Copeland preach in 1969, or I might say the first uh, scriptures I heard him refer to back in 1969, when I had just surrendered my life to the Lord. And I remember him introducing this parable, beginning in verse 14, as the granddaddy of all parables. He went on to say, that if you don't understand this parable, then it's not likely that you'll ever understand any of them. This is the foundation. Because it says in verse 14, obviously Jesus is teaching here, the sower soweth the word. Now I'm a sower. Pastor Justin is a sower. That's our job. That's what we do. We sow the word. And I've been privileged to sow the Word of God personally into 48 different nations and to hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. I'm a sower. That's what I do. It's what I do, man. It's what I do. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and uh, I love seeing lives changed by the Word that is sown in their hearts. Now, that's what happened to me back in 1969. I knew nothing about the Word of God, as Brother Copeland would say, and he said in that sermon, I was scripturally illiterate, referring to himself, but I was the same way. I think I knew John 3.16. I'd heard that from a little boy. But as far as any depth in the Word, I had none. Any revelation knowledge, I had none. I'd never even heard uh, any teaching on covenant or the blessing of God, and certainly not the favor of God. I'd never heard anybody talk about that. And uh, the Word became the most important thing in my life, and it still is to this day, 52 years later. I couldn't get enough of it. And at that time, I owned an automotive business, and the Lord instructed me to shut that business down and go to my guest bedroom. And he said, give me the same dedication to my Word, that you gave to that business. Now, I, I grew up with a good work ethic. My daddy taught me how to work. And I loved what I did. I loved the challenge of working on automobiles. I, I repaired wrecked cars. I restored classic automobiles. Dad and I built hot rods and race cars. And I loved what I did. And uh, as far as I was concerned, I was going to do that for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I knew that in 1957, I'd heard the call of God. And since that was not what I wanted to do, then I ignored it and hoped that God would ignore it too. But he certainly didn't because the callings of God are without repentance. And uh, finally, I couldn't run anymore. In 1969, I heard the message of faith. And when I heard it, I knew that it was truth. I knew that, that this was something that I needed to lay hold upon and to build my life upon. And so I shut my business down 
and I went into our guest bedroom and I spent no less than eight hours a day studying the Word of God. And many of those days turned into 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And I did that for three months. And when I came out of that bedroom, and I'm not saying I never came out during that three months, I, I did, but when I came out from that, that time of, of studying and personal time with the Lord, I came out of there with a revelation. I knew who I was in Christ. I knew what belonged to me in Christ. I knew what I could do in Christ. And it, it changed my life. And then God began to open doors for me to share those things. And it started in the streets of my city. That's that I didn't start preaching in a church. I started in the streets of Shreveport, Louisiana. And then that went from street ministry to jail ministry to prison ministry. And, and then back in those days, they had uh, home Bible studies. People would open up their homes. They'd move all their furniture against the wall and put chairs in a circle. And, uh, and they'd invite a teacher to come and uh, teach the word for an hour or two. And we had those little Bible studies going on all over Shreveport and some of the surrounding areas. I'd go as far as Texacana and, uh, and, and do these home Bible studies. And it was giving me an opportunity to develop and cultivate my teaching gift. I was already a street evangelist, but now I'm being able to teach and uh, sharing those revelations that I had received by studying Kenneth Copeland's material and Kenneth Hagin, Oral Roberts, T.L. Osborne, and then things that God had taught me on my own that I'd never heard any of them teach. And it, and it uh, uh, became such an exciting thing when I'd have the opportunity to teach. I loved teaching. I loved seeing lives change just like the Word had changed my life. I still love that today. It's one of my favorite things to do is teach. Amen. And so this parable became very important to me because it says, The sower soweth the Word. And once again, I'm a sower and I'm sowing into you this morning. Pastor Justin sowed into their early service this morning. And the beautiful thing is, because of the resources we have available and, and social media and so forth, it, it doesn't stop with just this group right here. Right. It's going all over the world. Amen. Praise God. So we're, we're being able to sow into lives all over the world. You know, we get uh, communication from other nations, people in other nations. I, I, I watched you uh, last Sunday and so forth and talking about what the message did for them and, and those kind of things. And um, if you keep reading this parable, which I encourage you to do so, I'm not going to take the time to read it all today. But it talks about that once the word is sown, Satan cometh immediately to steal that word. Notice he doesn't even wait till tomorrow. He comes immediately. Everybody say, immediately. I always like to add, if not sooner. He comes immediately to steal that word. Now, why is it so important to him to steal the word? Because he knows that's where the power is. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans that I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. In other words, it, it, there, there's power in the word. And Satan realizes that 
If he does not steal that word from you, then it's not likely that he'll succeed in robbing you of what belongs to you through what Jesus did at Calvary. So it is to his advantage to come immediately and attempt to steal it. Why? Because many times in coming immediately, it hasn't had the opportunity to take root yet. Now, you know, once something takes root, it's harder to get out. Amen. Amen. Carolyn used to want me to help her root out grass and weeds in her flower beds. I always thought of something else I had to do. I, I got to be somewhere, sweetheart. It's time for me to leave. But she'd go out there with little bitty tools about this big, little shovels, and just dig and dig and dig and then dig and dig all day to get these roots out. I wanted to get the lawnmower and just mow the whole thing down. You know? but, and then go and do something important. You know? But... but she wanted to dig those roots out. And, uh, and it's not easy sometimes to dig out something when it has taken root. Now, God wants his word to take root in you. So it is so deep on the inside of you, there's no possibility of Satan stealing it. Amen? So that's the reason it is to his advantage to come immediately. Because he's hoping that it hasn't taken root yet. And, uh, and it says, and he will take away the word that was sown. Now, the Amplified says, Satan comes at once and by force takes away the message. He comes at once and by force takes away the message. Now, the message translation says, no sooner do they hear the word than Satan snatches away what God had planted in them. So you can see how important it is for the devil to come immediately. I mean, almost before you can get in your car and leave here this afternoon. Or after you get in your car and on your way home. You know, or sometime after lunch. He will attempt to steal it. And hoping that by this time next Sunday, you will have forgotten what you heard the Sunday before. And if you've forgotten it, then it's not likely that you're applying it. Okay? Because the Bible says we are to be doers of the word. Not hearers only, but doers of the word. The word snatch means to grasp hastily. And to take away or to extract. Extract. That's a word that often is associated with pulling teeth. <laughs> you know, by force. Ever, anybody ever had any teeth pulled? Aren't you glad they deaden it first? <laughs> they take it by force, you know. So, snatch, once again, means to grasp hastily, to take away or to extract. Satan wants to extract the word out of your life. He really doesn't care if you live or die. He don't care. It's while you're alive with the word deeply rooted in your heart that concerns him. Because that's when you're dangerous. That's when you have the ability to stop his operations in your life and in the lives of others. So 
You know, if you, if you died today and went to heaven, he could care less. If you died today and went to hell, he could care less. It's why you're still alive with the word of God in your heart that really concerns him. Amen. Why? Because with God's word in your heart, you're dangerous to his kingdom. Can you say amen? So once again, the word extract implies to remove by force. That's why the apostle Paul tells us that we must fight the good fight of faith. Paul also tells us that we must wage a good warfare. And Paul tells us also that having done all to stand, stand therefore. So it sounds like to me from this great man in whom probably two-thirds of the New Testament was given... You know, the revelation of, of, of how to be a New Testament believer. It looks like to me that this man is saying, we got a fight on our hands. Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> we have a fight on our hands. This doesn't come easy. You know, if, if the word of God being fulfilled in your life came easy without a fight, then every Christian would be winning in life. But not every Christian is winning in life. Not every Christian is living a victorious life. And one of the reasons why is because not every Christian is willing to fight the good fight of faith. They're not willing to wage a good warfare. And they're not willing to, having done all to stand, stand. Now, if there was any other way to live a winning lifestyle, to live a victorious lifestyle... I think I would have found out in 52 years. And if there was any other way other than having done all to stand, stand, fight the good fight of faith, wage a good warfare, then that's what I'd be preaching to you. But I don't know any other way. And this way worketh. So I'm just going to keep on living this way, praise God. I'm not afraid of a fight. My daddy taught me, now you understand, I haven't always been the big hunk of man I am today, but uh, <laughs> I was always little growing up. And, and the bullies always picked on the little guy to prove how big they were. Sometimes I'd come home crying from school because the bully was picking on me. And my dad boxed in the, in the Navy in World War II, and he would not have that. Now, I'm not saying this is the way you should raise a child, but this is the way my daddy raised me. He sat me down one day and said, son, if I ever catch you starting a fight, I'm going to whip you. I knew there wasn't any possibility of that. I don't start fights. I was too little. He said, but if you ever run from a fight, I'm going to whip you. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble now. Because I'd run from them. Because they was all bigger than me. The girls were bigger than me. (laughs) We We had a girl that lived next door to us. I don't know where that girl is today. Remember Carol Morris? That was a mean girl. And she was my age and she could whip every boy on our street. And since she lived next door to me, she picked on me. One day I said, one day when I grow up, I'm going to whip you. <laughs> me and Kenny Henner both told her, we're going to whip you, girl. You know? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a shame when you have to run from the girls. <laughs> that ain't right. 
There was one girl in my class in the sixth grade at Summer Grove Elementary School. That girl was bigger than the teacher. Her name was Donna Ham. I'll never forget Donna. She stood this much taller than me. And she would reach down to me and pick me up and call me Little Jerry. Come on up here, Little Jerry. Give me a hug. And my feet just be dangling, you know. And I say, Donna, put me down or I'm going to slap you. But I couldn't reach her. I saw they sent me a, a book here not too long ago about all the graduates, you know, that I graduated with and what they were doing, all of them they could locate. And when I got to Donna's name, it said deceased. Now, yeah, I just, it just brought tears to my eyes, remembering how she would pick me up in front of the whole class. We were in a play one time in the sixth grade, and I was playing the lead part, and she was playing the lead part of the girls. And at the end of the play, she picked me up and kissed me in front of the whole, the whole uh, uh, family that came. Embarrassed me to no end, you know. So, so when you're when you're little, you know. You have to learn to fight. Amen. You have to learn to fight. I didn't go looking for a fight, but I got to a place where I wouldn't run from him either. Because I knew if this guy don't whip me when I get home, daddy will. Because he said, son, if you ever run from one, I'm going to whip you. Well, I quit running from him. (laughs) And he taught me how to box. And so I loved boxing and still do to this day. I like boxing. Now, you don't understand. I like boxing. (laughs) And so uh, growing up, you know, you'd have to fight from time to time. And usually everybody I fought was bigger than me. Amen. It's a good thing Jesse, DePlantis, and I didn't know each other when we were little. We would have killed each other. (laughs) Because he was the same way. His his grandpa taught him not to run from a fight, you know. (laughs) And so, I'm not afraid of a fight. It's part of the life of faith. Now, our fight is not with flesh and blood. Thank God I don't have to fight people anymore. It's with principalities, powers, and so forth. It, we're, we're fighting the, the, the adversary and his regime, so to speak. But notice here, Paul is telling us, that we must wage a good warfare, that we must fight the good fight of faith, and that having done all to stand, we must stand. Now, the bottom line to all that is, you must become relentless. Look at your neighbor and say, relentless. If you want God's best in your life. Now, our prophetic word this year, as you well know, is that God wants us to experience abundant overflow. Everybody say abundant overflow. And then short time later after he gave that to me, he said, and I want you to tell them also that it will be a year of an unprecedented outpouring of my goodness. An unprecedented outpouring of my goodness. Now, I sowed that into you. And I'm doing it once again this morning. I sowed that into you. Now, do you think for one moment the devil's just going to roll over and play dead and let all that happen? 
No, what does Jesus say? What did he say? He comes immediately to steal it, to snatch it away. If you're going to experience abundant overflow and an unprecedented outpouring of the goodness of God, then you're going to have to fight for it. It doesn't happen automatically. Can you say amen? amen. Everybody still with me? Yes. Say it once again. An unprecedented outpouring unprecedented. of the goodness of God, goodness of God. an abundant overflow of the blessings of God is God's best for my life. I lay hold upon it. I'm willing to fight for it. I'm relentless. Lift your hands and thank God. Amen. Hallelujah. So once again, Satan will attempt to steal this word. In fact, he probably already has attempted to do so from the first time you heard it. And I first started preaching this in October of last year. So I'm quite sure that he's already attempted to steal it. And for some, he may have already been successful. But it's not too late. You can lay hold upon it again. And make a a new and fresh commitment. From this moment forward, I will be relentless. Amen. Now... I want you to go with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And let's begin in verse 11. And we desire that every one of you, look at your neighbor and say, this includes you, do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That every one of you will demonstrate diligence to the very end. In other words, no room for compromise. No room for wavering. No room for giving up. That you be not slothful or lazy. This is what happens to a lot of Christians. They get lazy. That you be not slothful. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice people with faith and patience. People who demonstrate an unwavering faith and patience. What happens to them? They inherit the promises. So just because some Christians never experience the fulfillment of the promises. On the other hand, there are many who do. And the Bible says... Follow those who are inheriting the promises. Follow their example. Don't, don't, don't follow the example of those who gave up and quit under pressure. And then it goes on to say, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sware by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Look at 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. After, everybody say after. After After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of faith and that we are to follow the example of our father in the faith. And what does it say about Abraham? He endured. And what happened as a result of it? He obtained the promise. So if you want the promise 
of abundant overflow and an unprecedented outpouring of the goodness of God, then you're going to be required just like Abraham was required. Amen. To persevere, to be persistent, to endure. Now the message translation says it this way. Abraham stuck it out and got everything that had been promised him. Now that's our example. Abraham stuck it out and got everything promised him. How many of you want everything God promised you? Now let me ask you again. How many of you want everything God promised you? Then does it just happen? Does it just come on us like ripe apples falling off a tree? No. We follow those who through faith and patience who inherit the promises and following our example or the example of our father in the faith, Abraham, then he endured. He stuck it out. Stuck it out. Look at your neighbor and say, that's what you need to do. Stick it out. Now, I realize that it'd just be a whole lot easier if we just didn't have to do anything. Amen. But I don't, I don't know anything in life. I've never experienced anything in life that was worth having that I wasn't willing to fight for. Amen. You, you just have to be willing to fight for it, not give up. Now, my grandson, Bryn, Bryn, come up here for a moment. This is Bryn. Look how tall that boy's getting now. Bryn loves basketball, and he's good at it. He's a good basketball player. And the last time, time I asked him, his favorite basketball player was Michael Jordan. Is that still true? Michael Jordan. Everybody knows Michael Jordan from the NBA. You know, he was an amazing basketball player. Now, I want to read something that Michael Jordan said. I play to win and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my enthusiasm to win. I play to win. Thank you, Brad. I play to win. I don't, I don't live by faith to lose. <laughs> I play to win. I don't live by faith because it's the religious thing to do. I live by faith to win. Because the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, which happens to be my favorite verse, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Without faith, there's no such thing as a life of victory. So I play to win. And just as Michael Jordan said, I will not let anything get in the way of my enthusiasm to win. Look at somebody and tell them, I will not allow anything or anyone to interfere with my enthusiasm to win at the game of life. Now that's what, that's what being relentless is all about. Can you say amen? 
Now, if you look at his achievements, and I'd like to read some of them to you, he, he backed what he said. He didn't just talk the talk like a lot of Christians do. He walked the walk, so to speak. Just some of his achievements. He led his team, the Chicago Bulls, to six NBA championships and was the finals MVP in each one of them. It's also well known that he was cut from his high school basketball team. Now, you know, a distraction like that could, could have set a different course for his life. You know, I, I grew up playing baseball all my young life. I played all the way from Little League up to a farm league team that was sponsored by the Kansas City Royals. I, I didn't play very long for that farm league team because I, I, I had an injury. And after I recovered, I, I didn't care about playing anymore. I got distracted. My dad was really upset with me. He said, son, what about your baseball career? Uh, Joe and I have an uncle, had an uncle. He's in heaven now, but uh, we had an uncle in, in uh, uh, Oklahoma. And every time I'd go see him, they had a, a, a small farm league team there in Oklahoma. And he was always wanting me to come and live with him and, his, and my aunt uh, there in Okima, Oklahoma, and play for that baseball team. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to do that, but, but had the opportunity to. But over a period of time, I got distracted. And I lost the desire to play anymore. Now, I had ambitions as a young boy to play professional baseball. And back when I was a kid, Mickey Mantle was the man. Oh, I loved Mickey Mantle. Roger Maris. You know, a lot of those old-time greats. And, and uh, dreamed of one day being able to go to New York and watch Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris play in Yankee Stadium. But I lived in Shreveport, Louisiana. New York City seemed like it was another country. How in the world would I ever get to New York City? And that never came about until later in life, years later, when I was already in the ministry for several years, and I went to New York City to spend some time with some friends of mine, and they asked me if I'd like to go to a Yankee game. I said, is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> yes, I'd like to go to a Yankee game. And I told him the story about, you know, my desire as a kid. And he said, well... Uh, I have a close friend who is a season ticket holder and he has seats right over third base. And I'm going to ask him if the Yankees are in town and uh, if we could, if we could use his seats. And so I'm in there in the uh, guest bedroom, hanging my clothes up. And he came in there and he said, you do have the favor of God. I said, yes, I do. He said, no, I, I'm, I mean, you really do have the favor of God. I said, yes, I do. I said, what are you referring to? He said, not only are the Yankees in town, but it's old timers day. And all them guys you watched as a kid, they'll be there playing today. <laughs> Mickey Mantle will be there. And my friend has given us his seats right over third base. I could almost reach out and touch Mickey Mantle. 
And it wasn't long after that that Jerry Ann and I were flying to Detroit and we're sitting there on American Airlines and uh, we're the only ones sitting in this first class section. And just before the door shut, Mickey Mantle came on board and sat right across from me. And got to talk to him and so forth and, uh, uh, and told him, you know, how much I enjoyed watching him as a kid and so forth. And he, he was very polite and very generous. And uh, then after we got off that flight and the pastor picked us up to take us to the hotel, when we got to the hotel, there was a taxi right in front of us. And when the door opened in the back of that taxi, Mickey Mantle gets out and he sees me. He says, you staying here? I said, yes, sir. He said, looks like we'll be spending the weekend together. And so Jerry and I got to our room and I said, let's go down and have uh, some lunch uh, before we go to the service tonight. Went downstairs. The only person in the restaurant was me, Jerry Ann, and Mickey Mantle. <laughs> I mean, God just set all this up. There's my hero, you know, baseball player, hero. And I'm spending the day with him. Amen. And one of the one of the one of the greatest blessings was one of our Bible school students years ago was married to a lady who worked for a national international news agency like Reuters, and uh, she was invited to cover Mickey Mantle's funeral. And I'd been praying for Mickey Mantle. Now he was a great baseball player, but he wasn't a very nice man. <laughs> he had a lot of problems. He drank. It's an alcoholic, womanizer, all kind of stuff. That part of him, uh, I didn't idolize. But I prayed for him all the time. And she came back with a program from that funeral to give me. And she said, and during the funeral, Bobby Richardson, who was uh, played with the Yankees when Mickey Mantle did, he was second baseman. He was now a minister after he retired from baseball. He did the funeral, and he told the story. Just before Mickey died, he gave his heart to Jesus. And I said, hallelujah, Mickey Mantle will be in heaven, and I'm going to be pitching. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. Just a, a neat little story there. But getting back to, to, to Michael Jordan, I've always loved watching athletes who excel. But if you follow their story, you know, it looks like they just, they're just born with all this talent and they don't have to do anything that anybody else does. No, you look into their story, hard work, hard work, determination, don't quit, don't give up. You know, when I was playing ball in Little League, our coach always told us stories about Babe Ruth. Because he, our coach, lived back in the days when Babe Ruth was still playing. And so that was his favorite ball player. And he was always telling us stories about Babe Ruth trying to inspire us. And he'd say, boys, Babe Ruth was the home run king. Back in that day, he was. He'd, bit, he'd, he'd uh, uh, knock more home runs than anybody else. Uh, where it is, I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, anyway, let me get to it because I don't want to overlook that part of my story. 
he, he, he knocked 900 and some odd home runs. No, 714 home runs during his career. 714 home runs. And we just sat there as little boys listening to that with our, you know, just thinking, wow, Babe Ruth. Everybody wanted to be Babe Ruth. Knocked 714 home runs. And one day I remember one, one kid, probably Kenny Henner, because he was the most outspoken of us all. And he probably, it was probably Kenny who said, well, did he ever strike out? <laughs> Much to our surprise. You know, you'd think anyone who hit 714 home runs in his lifetime never struck out. Uh, coach told us he struck out 1,330 times. How could you be home run king and strike out 1,330 times? Relentless. Relentless. Somebody asked him one time, babe, why do you try to knock a home run? Why do you, why do you swing so hard every time you get up to bat? I want to knock a home run. Well, getting on first would be good. Getting a triple would be good. I don't like them. I like home runs. <laughs> and if he struck out, there's always another at bat. You know, he was relentless. And then, of course, later, Henry Aaron broke his record. And then, of course, later, somebody else broke Henry Aaron's record. Why? Because they were relentless. Amen. You, you, you don't gain life's best, nor God's best, by being a quitter. You have to become relentless. Can you say amen? amen. Relentless, one of its definitions means continuing without withering or shrinking are folding up, are quitting. And here it says, that's a description of Abraham. He stuck it out and got everything God had promised to him. Now, you've heard my story, and I don't want to go into it in great length, but, but before coming to Christ, I, I was a quitter. I just always looked for the path of least resistance. Until one day, shortly after I'd received the Lord, 1969, I found this scripture. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, you've heard me tell this before, but that morning when I was reading that verse, that verse got as big as my Bible and jumped off the pages and into my heart. And the Lord said to me, this is the missing ingredient in your life. You've always been a great starter, but you've never been a great finisher. He said, if you don't develop the art of continuing, then you will never be the man I want you to be. You'll never be the preacher I want you to be. You'll never be the father or husband I want you to be. You've got to develop the art of continuing. And I remember standing up right there in that little guest bedroom, lifting my hand and I said, Father, in the name of Jesus, my days of quitting are over. I am no longer a quitter. From this day forward, I am determined to be a winner. And I've kept that promise for 52 years. 
And anybody knows me well, quit is not an option. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Quit is not an option. Well, have you had any opportunities to quit? How much time you got? We all have opportunities to quit, but you have to make a decision that quitting is not an option. Now, if you always hang on to, well, I could always do this, that, or the other. If you always have a plan B, plan C, plan D, then you, you will not be relentless. Amen. It's like when we were buying this property years ago. There was a Baptist church. And it had this building and it had about 10 acres with it. And one day I was riding by on my motorcycle and the Lord pointed it out to me. Now, I didn't know the pastor. They had built this building the same year I built our, our ministry headquarters around the corner. I didn't know the pastor, never met them, never been on the property. And the Lord said to me, that's the property I have provided for you. And I turned around and went back home and called Joe. And I said, Joe, call that pastor and see if that property is for sale. Now, there was no for sale sign on it or anything. And so he later got in touch with him and, and told him, you know, what the Lord had said to me. And the pastor said, well, that's amazing. He said, Friday night. Now, this was Saturday morning when I come riding by here. He said, Friday night, we had a special meeting and I told the church, that we had been given some more property on the other side of town, and I wasn't sure where God wanted us to be. We had this property, but now we've been given some other property. And he said, now I just told the church, let's pray, and whichever property comes up for sale, then we will know we're supposed to be at the other property. He said, we haven't even gone to the real estate office yet and put it on the market. He said, that's amazing that Your boss heard that. And he said, yes, it's for sale. They told us what they wanted for it. I told Joe, I said, tell him we want it. And we'll pay cash. I didn't have two nickels to run together (laughs) to buy this property and buy this building and so forth. But I knew what the Lord had said. Now I'm prepared to fight the good fight of faith. First thing I do is start sowing seed. You don't have harvest without sowing seed. And I needed a harvest. And so we started sowing seed. And, uh, and we signed a contract and told them what date, you know, we'd gone into closing. And I think it was, what, 10 days, Joe, before closing. We still didn't have any money. And then somebody gave us $30,000 toward it. Well, that, you know, you know, Jesus said, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn. That $30,000 was the blade. That, that gives you hope. That inspires you that God did hear us. The blade's up, you know. And then, what was it, Joe, about three days before closing? the remainder came in and it was a large amount, over $300,000. And it all came in about three days before closing. Now, if we had not determined to be relentless, we wouldn't have that testimony. Amen? And that's the way God has done everything we've ever done. We, we had to 
show him (laughs) that we were willing to go out on the ledge, so to speak, out on the limb for what we believed he wanted to do and demonstrate being relentless. And he's always come through, praise God. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a good shout. Praise God. Amen. Now, one of the greatest examples of relentlessness in the Bible is the Apostle Paul. I love the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. Would you go there with me very quickly? Acts chapter 20. And look at verse 22. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save or only that the Holy Ghost witnesses or has witnessed to me that in every city there will be bonds and afflictions beside me or Waiting for me, abide me. Bonds and afflictions abide me. Or in other words, when I get to every city I'm called to preach in, I can anticipate trouble. (laughs) Trouble. I'm glad I don't have that testimony. (laughs) I mean, there's been a few cities I've preached in and trouble was waiting for me when I got there. But not every city. How many preachers would still be in the ministry today if every city they went to, trouble awaited them? They'd be backstroking out of the ministry. (laughs) But he said, every city, the Holy Ghost has already told me that trouble awaits me. But then he said in verse 24, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received with the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm determined to be relentless. No matter what awaits me, no matter what test or trial I have to endure, I have already determined beforehand that I will finish my course. That that turning back and giving up is not an option. None of these things move me. Look at your neighbor and say, me neither. Say, none of these things opposing my victory move me. See, that's, that's the definition of being relentless. You're not moved by it. That's an attitude. Of a winner, praise God. You're not moved by it. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, failure was unacceptable. Unacceptable. Amen. Amen. Finishing his course. That was his goal, and nothing was going to stand in the way of him accomplishing that goal. Now, if you take a look... In his writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, verse 22 through 28, I won't take the time to read it, but a partial list of everything he went through for the gospel's sake, for 
endeavoring to fulfill that ultimate goal, finishing his course. Beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, snake bites, angry mobs, everything you can imagine. And he wouldn't quit. He wrote to Timothy and said in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7, at the end of his life, for I am now ready to depart. I'm now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have finished. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course and I have kept the faith. What a testimony. Amen. That's what I want my testimony to be. When it's time for me to go home and be with the Lord, I want to be able to say, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Hallelujah. That ought to be the desire of every one of us in this building. Amen. And I received everything God wanted me to have. Hallelujah. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, in verse 13 and 14, from the New Living Translation, this is something that Paul said that should motivate us as well. I focus on this one thing. Pastor Justin talked about focus this morning. I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead for us? Abundant overflow. Unprecedented outpouring of the goodness of God. And then he went on to say, and I press on. In verse, uh, uh, in that same verse, he says, or the next verse, he says from the Revised Standard Version, brethren, join in imitating me. In other words, he's saying, I'm not letting anything stand in my way. And I strongly suggest you don't let anything stand in your way either. Follow my example in imitating my example. And then from the message translation, it says, those of you who want everything God has for you. Anybody in here want everything God has for you? Then Paul's suggestion is follow this example. Look at your neighbor and say, it takes being relentless. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, let me wrap it up with this. Uh, Another way of looking at being relentless is from James chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. James is talking about if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Nothing uh, asking in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So from this, you could say that that being relentless is being single-minded. Double-minded is not an illustration or an example of being relentless. If one moment you're saying, I'm believing for abundant overflow and a couple of days down the road because all hell is broken loose, I don't think it's ever going to happen. How in the world could that happen to me? You're double-minded. You're like a wave tossed on the sea. Notice while I'm being tossed, there's no stability. 
and it don't take much to knock you over. So James, from the writings of James, we could say that, that being relentless is becoming single-minded. Amen. The New International Version says that a double-minded person, it says such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. People that are double-minded, they shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. And verse 12 from the Revised Standard Version says, Blessed is the man who endures. Anybody want to be blessed? Look at your neighbor and say, that's me he's talking about. I'm that blessed man. And I'm that man who endures. I'm determined to become relentless. Can you say amen? amen? All right, praise God. Let me wrap it up with this. One of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament is Micah 7 verse 8. When I fall, I shall arise. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall arise. That means even if you get knocked down in your attempt to be relentless, just because you got knocked down does not mean it's all over. Get up. Start again. Even if you compromised, that doesn't mean it's over. Get back up. Amen. Tell the devil, rejoice not against me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall arise. The message translation says, I'm down, but I'm not out. Amen. I, I was watching some boxing yesterday. I thought it'd get in the sermon. And I watched this guy who was over seven foot tall fighting a guy who was less than six feet tall. When they met in the center of the ring, it was like the towering inferno <laughs> looking down at this little guy. Now, he, he was not a little guy. He was, he was just under, you know, over six feet. That's not little. But it looked like, you know, a runt fighting a giant. And this guy, the big guy, knocked that guy down three times in the first round. And everybody thought it's all over. He probably won't even get up that third time. But he did. Went back to the corner, staggered, but he got out for the second round and he kept fighting, kept punching. And this big guy, he didn't have a whole lot of fights. He didn't have a whole lot of experience. He just, he just counted on at one hard blow to finish the job, but he didn't have the stamina and it was a 10 round fight. <laughs> And even though this little guy got knocked down three times in the first round, he had the stamina and he just kept coming back and he kept coming back. And I thought surely before that fight was over that he was going to knock the big guy out. He almost did. He staggered him several times. And, 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 uh, even though everybody thought from the first round, this is not even, this is a mismatch, but the guy, it turned out being a draw. And the guy that was little, he was so happy that he got a draw because everybody else thought he was over the first round. He must have read Micah 7, 8 before the fight. When I fall, I shall arise. Amen. When I fall, I shall arise. And then 
Proverbs 24, 16. For a just man falleth seven times. There's some people that get knocked down seven times. I watched a guy get knocked down three times yesterday. But sometimes, you know, as Christians, we get knocked down seven times. But this proverb says, but he riseth again. The Lord told me many years ago when he gave me that sermon about when I fall, I shall arise. And it's gone all over the world. He said, son, the answer to falling seven times, all it takes to win is get up eight. Amen. Just get up one more time. Praise God. So I don't want anybody missing out in this church or anybody that is hearing this message anywhere in the world, missing out on abundant overflow and unprecedented outpouring of the goodness of God. Amen. You can have that. You can have that. It's obtainable but you have to make a determination to become relentless. Can you say amen? amen? Let's give the Lord a good shout. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Bow your heads for a moment. Everybody bow your heads. If you're near this morning and I'm not trying to put you down in any way or embarrass you, it's really not want everybody to bow their heads. But if you have just felt over the last few days or weeks that there's no other choice. I just just can't stand anymore. I don't know that I have what it takes to keep standing. And you've been feeling that way for quite some time. And the temptation to give up has been on you strong. You have to battle it in your mind over and over again. Seem like you get victory over it and it just keeps coming back. I want to pray for you. I want to join my faith with yours. If that's you in here this morning, just lift your hand. Nobody else is looking around. All right. Several hands are up. Okay. Now, everybody put a hand, uh, your right hand over your heart. And particularly those of you who lifted your hands. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over every person who lifted their hands. And I first of all want to congratulate them for being honest with you and being honest with themselves. It's not a sin to admit that I felt like giving up. We pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who's been sent by God, who resides within them, will rise up in them right now and strengthen them, inspire them, give them fresh hope for the future, cause them to rise up and to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We pray in the name of Jesus that during those moments of silence where Satan tries to step in and talk them into quitting, that the voice of the Holy Spirit will be much louder 
than the voice of Satan on the inside of them. That they'll hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you can do this. You can make it. I'm with you. I'm your helper. I'll not leave you nor forsake you. Your word says that the word of God is able to build us up. To give us hope. And to give us an inheritance. And Lord, I pray that this morning, the word that they've heard is in the process right now of building them up. Giving them fresh hope. Stirring up their faith. In the name of Jesus. And I pray that their testimony will be, I didn't quit. I didn't give up. I fought the good fight of faith. And God has given me the victory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Let's all lift our hands and let's thank God for that right now. Hallelujah. Thank God for that right now. Those of you that are watching by internet, I pray that if you felt that way as well, you prayed that prayer with us, praise God, and that I'd love hearing from you saying the message this morning has given me new hope. It strengthened my faith. I'm going to be the winner that God wants me to be. Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a good shout. Hallelujah. Amen. Before Pastor Phil comes, um, I encourage Justin to write this book from a message that he preached in this church some time back talking about why we are heritage of faith. And I want to give you some of the reasons that he stated in his sermon. And I thought it was such a powerful message that everybody in our church needed a copy of this. So we've had it printed. We're going to give everybody in our church a free copy of it. I want you to take it home, read it, keep it near your bedside or wherever it is you like to pray and study. We're sending it to all of our heritage churches, heritage of faith churches all over the world. Pastor Justin said, we're a house of faith. We're a house of prayer. We're a place of glory. And we're a people of influence. That's what this church is all about. That's what heritage faith churches all over the world are all about. And we want every member to, to have that revelation on the inside of them. We don't come here to play church. <laughs> we are the church. Hallelujah. We're winners in life. Hallelujah. And our testimony is affecting and influencing other people outside these doors. Praise God. So on your way out, you will be given one of these little books. Take it home with you. Read it. Several times, because it's, it's going to really bless your life, okay? Praise God. All right, Pastor Phil, come on.